Welcome to Improbable Walks, a podcast that brings you to the streets of Paris wherever you are. My name is Lisa Passold, and I'm a writer and traveler who loves to walk in the City of Light. Every episode, we stroll down a different block of the city exploring Parisian history, people, stories, and architecture. Today, we're walking through the Palais Royal, starting on the Rue des Petits Champs, just to the north of the Palais Royal in the first arrondissement of Paris. This neighborhood is a gorgeous mishmash of 17th, 18th, and 19th century buildings. We're going to step off the Rue des Petits Champs just here before number five. We'll step into a pretty gray stone archway that leads to a crooked, narrow hall. Let's call it an early 19th century equivalent of a shopping mall. This allows us to go from the busy street of the Petit Champ, noisy with traffic, to the much quieter entrance of the Palais Royal. Let's step down into the pillars and cool promenades of the Palais Royal. In 1629, the advisor to Louis XIII, Cardinal Richelieu, built a palace for himself here, conveniently close to the Louvre and the King. Richelieu died in 1642. The following year, the regent, Queen Anne of Austria, installed herself here with her two young sons, King Louis XIV and Philip d'Orléans. Her minister and rumored lover, Cardinal Mazarin, moved in as well, in a different wing. And the palace became known officially as the Palais Royal. Eventually, Louis XIV gave his brother the palace as a gift, and it remained in this branch of the royal family. Fast forward two kings into the period just before the French Revolution. The king's cousin, another Philippe d'Orléans, inherited the palace and does some renovating. That's when these promenades with columns around the gardens were built. This is also when shops and restaurants go up on the ground floor. Soon the Palais Royal becomes the place to see and be seen. You come here to eat ice cream in the gardens and to discover the brand new trendy concept of restaurant dining. In these years just before the revolution, this is where you might have seen Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Saint-Georges is a fascinating historical figure because he's not only a successful conductor and composer directing prestigious musical soirees for royalty, but he's also an internationally renowned swordsman. And yet Saint-Georges has very unlikely beginnings. He's the son of a slave woman. He's born on the island of Guadeloupe and his father is a minor nobleman and plantation owner. His mother, Nanon, is enslaved. The birth of Joseph is in no way unusual. What's rare is what happens next. His father frees Nanon and brings her and Joseph with him to Paris. The father sends the boy to the Royal Academy, where he excels, especially in fencing. 
And when Joseph graduates in 1766, Louis XV is so impressed with his skills that he makes him a chevalier, an officer. Soon, the Chevalier Saint-Georges is a protégé of Marie-Antoinette. She plays piano while he accompanies her on the violin. Within three years, he's first violin with the most prestigious orchestra in Paris. Soon after that, he's the director of the orchestra. He moves in the same circles as Mozart, who famously detests him. Then comes the French Revolution. Despite his aristocratic connections, Saint-Georges drops the chevalier part of his name and joins the Garde Nationale on the side of the revolution. He's one of the best swordsmen in France, after all, and he has a vested interest in liberty and equality. I like to imagine Saint-Georges strolling here in the Palais Royal all too briefly before he goes into battle in Lille. He's put in command of the Légion Noire, the Legion of Black Frenchmen, where his lieutenant is none other than the famous general Alex Dumas, merely a lieutenant starting out at this point in his career. Dumas is the father of writer Alexandre Dumas, who wrote bestsellers like The Three Musketeers. In fact, it's possible that the author based the politically savvy, highly cultured character of Aramis, the musketeer, on his father's friend, Saint-Georges. The real Chevalier Saint-Georges wins important battles but still ends up jailed during the terror. He spends 11 months in appalling prison conditions, but he manages to come through alive. And then he comes back here, to the Palais Royal to revive his musical career. To be honest, my favorite era for the Palais Royal starts at this moment. This is the all too brief period of the Directoire, after the terror, but before Napoleon manipulates his way to the top. During this period, the Palais Royal is the ultimate place to see and be seen. The city's most popular restaurants are here. Soldiers come to gamble, Officers stroll with ladies of easy virtue, and an orchestra is playing, frequently playing music by Saint-Georges. By 1797, prison behind him, Saint-Georges is directing the orchestra here. Tragically, he has only two years to enjoy the prestige before dying suddenly in 1799 from an infection. This means he doesn't live to see the betrayal of the black French citizens in 1802 by Napoleon. Because in 1802, Napoleon reinstates slavery in the French colonies. France only finally abolishes slave trafficking in 1817 and legally removes its structures in 1848. But for now, as we stroll in the gardens of the Palais Royal, let's imagine Saint-Georges alive, impeccably dressed, pausing to have a coffee or a light meal in one of the new restaurants that has appeared here. Maybe he has a sheaf of music under his arm or a case for his violin. One of the restaurants he might have patronized is still here. If we walk across the top of the gardens, we can admire the decor through the windows. These days, the restaurant is called Le Grand Véfour. Originally, it was a simple, popular cafe set up by a drink seller. 
1820, Jean Vefour took over the cafe, changing the name. He turns it into a luxurious restaurant. Even today, the Grand Vefour is a wonderful place to eat, and the interior is gorgeous, as if you have stepped back into the, the Directoire era of Saint-Georges. The Grand Vefour, with its beautiful décor, continued to be fashionable all through the 20th century as well. If you dropped by here in 1950, you might have seen the French writers Colette and Jean Cocteau sharing a meal in this restaurant. Playwright, poet, and filmmaker Jean Cocteau moved into the Palais Royal in 1940. He lived here with his lover Jean Marais, who starred in Cocteau's famously surreal film La Belle et la, et la Bête, Beauty and the Beast. They lived on the Montpensier western wing of the Palais Royal. This was Jean Cocteau's Paris address until his death in 1963. Cocteau wrote that he had been affected by the charm in the exact sense of the word that the Palais Royal exerts on certain souls. The writer Colette moves in some years before Cocteau. In fact, she first arrives in Paris in 1893, but lives on the left bank with her first husband, Willie, who used to lock Colette into a room so she'd write faster. Willie published her novels under his name, and she eventually leaves him in 1906. Colette goes on to dance nude in the music halls, work as a serious journalist covering the front during World War I, and publishes innumerable novels under her own name. She first arrives here on the Rue de Beaujolais wing of the Palais Royal in 1927. The Beaujolais wing is at the top of the garden, basically the same wing as the Grand Vefour. Colette moves out but returns in 1938 with her third husband, Maurice Goudke. Here in the same building as before, but one floor higher up, so she has bigger windows and better light. It's also here that Maurice, her third husband, who's Jewish, is arrested by the Gestapo. Presumably, they're unaware of Colette's mixed-race family history. From this apartment, Colette pulls every connection she's got in the French art scene, trying to get Maurice out of prison, and he's released in 1942. They continue living here until her death in 1954. Her funeral, in fact, is held in the far courtyard of the Palais Royal. Let's stroll under the neatly pruned trees over to this far side of the palace. We'll go past the silver rolling ball fountain by Paul Bury. The French Ministry of Culture is to our left, and to our right is the back of the Comédie Française Theatre. Here we step through a permanent modern art installation by Daniel Buren, a forest of striped low pillars with water running underneath a curved pavement. There are always people here taking selfies, standing on the pillars, which are conveniently socially distanced. A few years ago, I watched two little girls fishing for coins through the grill using a magnet on a string here. They were amassing a tiny fortune. Maybe they were being guided by the ghosts of gamblers from the 1790s. 
To finish the walk, I suggest we stroll just out of the Palais Royal and have a glass of wine on the terrasse of the Café Nemours. The café looks out onto the Place Colette, named of course for the writer, and also looks onto the beautiful building of the Comédie Française. If you enjoyed this improbable walk, please subscribe to the podcast. For details about today's walk, how to spell names of people and streets, please visit my website, lisapasold.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we stroll together in Paris. <laughs>